the, I was telling Uncle Bruce, uh, we were standing here just a minute ago, so much of what we've been on, and, and we started in June. I don't know if y'all realize, it's October now, and we've been on, and we're basically still in Matthew 5 <laughs> since June. But so much of what we have learned is really the same stuff that Uncle Elon always taught. Right attitudes and right spirits. He, he didn't worry about what you look like. He wanted you to love people. Because when you started loving God and you started loving people, all that, everything else took care of itself. But it, it came, that's right, it lines up. It came from a heart change. And, um, and it's just, and I was actually, I, this morning, that just thought just came to me. I was like, this is just a continuation of everything that he has always taught. And, um, and we're getting into the section of the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus is starting to give these concrete examples. Last week, you know, we talked about, you know, murder. And the, the, really, God's problem wasn't with murder. It's crazy to say. God's problem was with the hate, the anger, all those feelings that cause the murder. That's what Jesus was worried about. That's what his concern was. And Jesus is really trying to get us to understand the nature of, of true righteousness it isn't just that we don't go commit a crime it's what we're doing with our heart it's so important to God people who are truly righteous are going to be characterized by those things we talked about in the Beatitudes they're going to be poor in spirit they're going to be mournful over their own sin they're going to be meek that means they're going to be God controlled they're going to hunger and thirst after righteousness they're going to be merciful towards others because they've been shown great mercy they're going to be pure in heart their heart is going to seek out good things their heart is literally going to seek out good things and then they will become biblical peacemakers reconciling God and man and reconciling man and man in a godly way they're going to be persecuted as a result we talked about that there's going to be persecution that's come that's going to come but then they're going to be salt of the earth and the light of the world all that stuff is to bring glory to God. Everything that he's calling us to do is to bring glory to God. And we've already seen in, in Matthew 5, 17 through 20, that Jesus is made plain. Everything that he is teaching is in harmony with the Old Testament. He's not changed. He's not come to change the law. He's come to fulfill the law. And we're getting at, now, now that we've talked about fulfilling the law, we're getting into the heart of the law. Verse 20 is a condemnation. Remember, the, the whole thing is your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. Kind of a, to his audience, that must have sounded crazy. These are the people who did it for a living. They were professional law obeyers. And he said, your righteousness must exceed those. And the scribes and the Pharisees, what they didn't understand at that point was they were not going to make it into the kingdom of heaven if they could not find a way to exchange their self-righteousness for God's righteousness. And last week we started into those examples, the hatred, anger, and, and murder. And the scribes had, remember, they taught that your problem was just the, the physical act of murder, but it didn't matter what your heart was. And Jesus is exposing, he's shining that light of truth into all those things. It, it all comes from the heart. And so the person that expresses anger, the person who, who ha feels that anger in their heart, and the, and the person that allowed that anger to erupt into slandering the character of someone else, that person is going to be guilty enough. Remember, we had the courts, the Supreme Court, and then, and then Hellfire, yeah. were the, sort of the three levels that you would go before. And, and that's quite a contrast between the teaching of Jesus and the teaching of the scribes. And Jesus has not at this point yet condemned the scribes. He's only condemned their teaching. It won't be until they reject him as the Messiah that he will begin to reject them and condemn them. 
but what he's doing right now, and he's doing it in just such a, a beautiful way. He's exposing their, tre- their teaching, and he's exposing the flaws in their teaching. And, and he's, he's it, it's weird to think it this way, but in so many ways, he's really reaching for them in the same way he was reaching for the adulteress and the tax collector. He's preaching to the scribes and the Pharisees. It's just that their self-righteousness was so high that they couldn't realize he was actually reaching out to them too. He was preaching to them those days. He wasn't just, he wasn't just there to talk bad about them. He really was reaching for them as well. And he's, he's, um, he's trying to give them an, an access to the light and, and, and they've got to decide what they're going to do with the light that he's shining because it will determine their future destiny. Are they going to accept the correction? Are they going to become poor in spirit? Are they going to hunger and thirst after righteousness? Or are they going to continue in their self-righteousness? Or are they going to keep straining at a gnat and swallowing a camel? Remember that phrase? Are they strain at a little bitty tiny gnat? They, they made a big deal about the little gnat and they're swallowing a camel. And Jesus is pointing all this stuff out. And, and you know, you, clearly we find as, as, the, as the scriptures go further, it's not making any inroads into their brains. But it's really important because it's the same question that's facing us. We have this exact same question in front of us. We have a choice, too, between our self-righteousness and his righteousness. And we know how it ends for the scribes. It ends with their condemnation, and, and then ultimately they, they you know, deliver Jesus to the Sanhedrin, and then they deliver Jesus to Pilate. Jesus' teachings were revealing things in them that they may not have wanted to know. It happens to me, too, sometimes. The Bible does that. Um, and they were hoping, I guess they were hoping that maybe Jesus would just pass off the scene and then everything could go back to the way it was. I can imagine that was, that you know, somebody was leaning over, you know, look, his time's going to fade. He'll be out of here. He'll be gone. And then once he's gone, we can get back to business. But Jesus had come to change everything. He had come to change everything. The light shined in the darkness and the darkness could not extinguish it. When Jesus was born, the light came on, and nothing that the world could do was ever going to extinguish that light. And so that light is going to keep shining into the darkness. That light is shining into our lives today. We can, we can take advantage of that light. Because as we go through each of these illustrations of true righteousness, that, like we did last week and like we're going to do today, then our heart is going to be exposed too. It is. Our heart is going to be exposed just like the scribes were. That light of Jesus Christ shines into our hearts. And the test for us all today and this week and next week and the week after is what do we do with that exposure? How do we handle that light that is shined into our hearts? What are we going to do? Will we accept the conviction? Will we accept the correction that we receive at the hands of the Holy Spirit? As he works on our heart? Because he is, he's walking in this place. He's walking in this place down every aisle, across every pew. He's walking and he's talking to us. Will we turn from our sinfulness and will we turn towards the Savior? Will we become poor in spirit? Will we become mournful over sin? Will we become meek? Will we hunger and thirst? And will it increase? Will our hunger and thirst increase for righteousness and our drive to be pure in heart? Will that increase as well? This is to be preferred. This is the choice that I hope that we all take. That's the correct response, isn't it? But everyone in this room, you all know as well as I do, that's not the only response we can have. 
we, we, we can have multiple responses to, the, to move, the move of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We could be like the self-righteous leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees, and we could reject what Jesus says. We could continue in our own self-deception, can't we? We can do that. He, he doesn't make us do things. We can do that. We certainly can go that route. And it's, a lot, it's an option that a lot of professing Christians actually take. Just stick my head back in the sand, keep doing things exactly the way I was. It's amazing how many Christians take that option. And in the passage we studied last week, Jesus really laid open our hearts and exposed the murder that is in all of our hearts. He exposed that. Murder that expresses itself in unrighteous anger, in calling other people names, and in slandering their character. The only proper response, I can tell you the proper response, but we all have to decide individually how we're going to we're going, to, we're going to actually respond. But the only proper response to that exposure is brokenness over sin. That's the response that Jesus is calling us to. Brokenness over sin. Pleading for God's grace and mercy and then rejoicing that it's given freely. Rejoicing in how free it is given to all of us. And this morning we're going to come to another section that really exposes our hearts. What are we going to do with the light today? What we're going to talk about today is, the, is kind of goes into the sixth commandment. Jesus said, you have heard that it said you shall not commit adultery. And the scribes had the same mindset today that many in the religious circles have. They were very concerned about what the Bible says, which is good, and they should be. They studied the scripture in detail, another good thing to do. They wanted to be very careful to do all that the scripture said. Again, a wonderful, wonderful goal. However, they had made a separation between the mind and the heart, and they had made a separation between the, the act. So the mind-heart that were thinking and, and feeling, they had made a separation between that and the very act. And that, that physical separation that they had created created a separation where God had not created one. It was a human-made separation. And that separation was, was something that, that God never intended the law never contemplated, the law never wanted that separation to be made. And since they could not see a person's heart and discern that person's motives or the desires of that person, they paid little attention to what was going on inside a person and they just looked at the outside. That's all they cared about. And, and I guess in some ways we have, God's given us all a sense of judgment, right? We, 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 can, we can read the room, we can tell clues from, it's not that it's, we're not trying to judge someone, give them a final judgment, but we are able to exercise our judgment. And we can guess at the clues that come out of a person's life. But the problem with the scribes and the problem that a lot of religious folks have is that they forget what God sees. It's the heart. That's what God sees. It's the heart. And he is very, very concerned about the heart. A list of rules and regulations may be helpful to remind ourselves that we need to be careful in all that we do. But when we begin to think that we are good because we manage to keep the list of do's and don'ts, we have fallen into the trap of self-righteousness. Does that make sense? When the list of rules and regulations becomes the thing that we worship, we have become self-righteous because we're doing those things and we're not really worried about what our heart. We're just worried about, did I, did I check every box? Does that make sense? Even in Exodus 20 in the Ten Commandments, God's concern was for the heart. And then he gives those Ten Commandments. Let's, I'm going to read them real fast. Number one, no other God before me. Number two, no idols. 
Number three, don't take the name of the Lord in vain. Number four, keep the Sabbath. Number five, honor your father and your mother. Number six, don't murder. Number seven, don't commit adultery. Number eight, don't steal. Number nine, don't bear false witness. And number 10, do not covet. The religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees had turned each of those into specific physical actions that you did or did not do. Yet each of them has an element that comes from the heart. And the last one, don't covet, is, all, is completely from the heart. You can't, you can't show that one physically. You, that one all, all is completely from the heart. If any action is taken to gain the object coveted, then it's stealing, right? The scribes had taken that commandment about do not commit adultery, and they had decided that they were righteous because they had not committed the act. Do you see what they're, what, that's what they thought meant righteous. I've not committed the act, therefore I'm righteous. They looked at the technical aspect of the law. They, looked, they said that adultery was just sex between a person who is married and someone other than your own spouse. That's what they thought it was. And because they hadn't done that, they were good. That's what they thought. That was their idea. And in many ways, with that, you think about the perversion in our own society, we might think that we are quite good if we keep that level. If I maintain that level, I'm pretty good, aren't I? I have, not, I have not had sex outside of my marriage, therefore, man, I'm, I got it. I'm good. All around us, we see a society, a society that is preoccupied by sex, isn't it? That's what the, our whole culture is, is preoccupied by that. The media, it glorifies infidelity. It glorifies divorce. It glorifies perversion. It glorifies, uh, it sneers at marriage. It sneers at, at people who are faithful to their spouses. It sneers at moral purity. We had a president almost 30 years ago who had gotten himself into all sorts of problems, almost lost his presidency because of adultery. But the media defended him, didn't they? And the popular culture just sort of winked and nodded at it. I mean, that's how it was handled. And, 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 and I guess that's because that's what they promote in all their shows. So it, they didn't see it as a big deal. And, and things have only gotten worse since Bill Clinton was in office. I mean, it, the, the culture has just changed so much. And in a, in a society like this, you might think that God is very pleased indeed with you that you have not done what the president did back in 1996. You haven't joined in society's perversions. And we do know that God hates adultery. In Leviticus 20 and 10, God commands the most severe punishment. He commands death for that. It, but Hebrews 13 and 4 says also that fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Paul warns about it in 1 Corinthians 6 and 9. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals will inherit the kingdom of God. That's what the Bible says. The act is a problem as we've seen, but Jesus is worried about the sin in the heart. That's what all that Jesus worries about. The scribes had taught that commandment, do not commit adultery. And, and that was good because Jesus agreed, God agreed with that. But the scribes had missed the major part of the commandment. They thought that they were righteous. And maybe you think that you are righteous because you have not had sex outside your marriage. But read on. Jesus exposes the wickedness that is in the hearts of men and in women. In verse 28, But I say to you that everyone who looks on a woman to lust for her has committed adultery with her already in his heart. Jesus directly applies. He takes the 10th commandment and he applies it. Do not covet to the 6th commandment. Do not commit adultery. And he says anyone that has lust, that's a strong sexual desire. We understand that concept. For anyone other than their spouse has committed adultery in their heart. That is a judgment against everyone, married or not. 
That actually includes everyone. So you don't have, uh, the unmarried aren't saved from this. All of us married people, we're, we're bound by it, but so are the unmarried. Notice that Jesus uses that all-inclusive word, everyone, and he doesn't distinguish between men and women. Women, you're, you're, this is for you too. Jesus' statement applies both to married and unmarried. And Jesus, even though he used the male as the example, the injunction applies to females too. And it's lust for any other human person. And in the day and age we're in, we're probably best if we make that clear as well. It doesn't really matter which gender you're lusting after. It's, you're included in this. Everyone is included. But what does Jesus mean by this statement? Is it a blanket condemnation? I mean, we all have eyes, right? It's hard not to look sometimes. I'm just being real blunt and honest. You, you go to Galveston or Gulf Shores, people aren't wearing a lot of clothes. It just, it just is. They have told this story, and, and he's not here to defend himself, my poor great-grandfather, but they told the story of him driving down uh, the, the, the beach highway in Biloxi, and he's just driving, and some you know, woman walks by in a skimpy outfit, and he's, he's just driving, and ain't that a shame? Ain't that, ain't that a shame? And I've done it too. And I bet there's not a man or woman in this room who hasn't done something similar. We've all done that kind of thing. We, we're humans. We've got eyes. They work. Our eyes do things. And, 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 and So it's not a blanket condemnation. I don't think that Jesus is talking about on, on looking. But I think we all have the ability to fall prey to the sinful lusts that follow the look. Does that make sense? The word look is not just an, a, an incidental glance, an accidental, oh, Somebody walks across your field of view. That's not what Jesus is talking about. The grammar here indicates that what Jesus is talking about is someone that continues to look. Stares. Can't stop looking. That's what it's talking about. It's one thing to, to see a girl and think she's beautiful. Or for a lady, it's one thing for you to see a man and think he's handsome. It's quite another thing to take that person you thought was handsome or beautiful and then begin to think how they might look with fewer clothes or maybe I could meet them at the motel later. That's different, right? We can all see the difference. Every one of us can see. It is an intentional and repeated gazing is what Jesus is talking about. And the purpose of it is to satisfy the evil desires of the heart. That's lust. That's what lust is. The word lust is just simply strong desire. The context indicates that the strong desire is the person being viewed. And obviously, I, it goes without saying, but pornography is included in this. It's not just physical person-to-person -person contact. Pornography is also included in this. People who are caught up in pornography are, are guilty of this exact thing that Jesus is describing. And I could spend the whole sermon talking about the evils of pornography and the effect it has had on our society and especially our young people. But I, I'm not, that's not the purpose of this sermon today, but you know that it applies. Know that, that is, I'm, I'm talking about that as well when I talk about all this stuff. I believe all of us are aware of that awful, awful pervasive influence of pornography in our society. It, 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 the, the, the hardest of hardcore can be viewed on your phone these days. It can be accessed in seconds, and that stuff is designed to drag us into sinful thoughts and actions. And uh, it, whatever you call it or, or however you look at it, it, it it's, it's evil, and it's, it's designed to cause lust. TV and movies are also a big one, aren't they? Even if it's not a pornographic film, TV and movies, lots of the things that we watch, they have sex scenes, 
or they encourage different lifestyles that we know are not Christian. All of that stuff is encouraged by television and movies. How do you respond if you're watching something and a sex scene comes on? And most often it's, it's rarely a husband and a wife living in a committed relationship, is it? That's not what they show. That, that, that just isn't. It, it, it's something different. Do we turn the TV off? Do we write a letter to complain to the Bureau of, Bo- of Standards or whoever does that stuff these days? Do we feel disgusted? Do we feel violated? Or do we quietly tolerate it? I'm so guilty of that quiet toleration. I, I'm uncomfortable, but I don't move. Like, I know I shouldn't be watching this, but I want to see the next scene. That won't be a sex scene, so I'll sit through the sex scene to get to the next scene. I'm just being real honest with y'all. Let's just be frank. The material is written to entice you into a sympathetic relationship with the characters, and it does a really good job of getting you to condone immorality and even say it is good when even though your internal compass, your moral compass is saying that's wrong. One test you can throw at it is this. Would I be comfortable watching this in front of my children or my parents? Let me also point out to you that the sin of lusting after someone else does not have to involve the eye to occur. The look can also occur within the mind. Novels, Harlequin novels, I don't know what is read these days, but all those kind of things, they, they, they condone the fantasy. The lust in the heart is still the same. And, and maybe that really does, and maybe that gets us back to where, what Jesus is really saying, the core of what Jesus is saying. The problem with sin is that it is not external. It is not external. It is internal. The problem with sin is in here. It is what is in our heart. The problem is not that a guy may see a beautiful woman walk by because that woman is a creation of God and her beauty should give glory to God, right? that's That's not the problem. The problem is not even that the guy may see a woman clothed immodestly or not clothed in some way that happens that you can't control. The problem is what's in the heart of that man when he sees the thing. Or woman, I'm not trying to preach just to the men. We want to quote that verse and to say, to the pure, all things are pure. But the problem is that our hearts are impure and we cannot trust them. Our hearts are not trustable. The prophet Jeremiah put it this way in Jeremiah 17 and 9. The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? (coughs) We want to think that we are better than someone else because they may have fallen in this area. Oh, I haven't done that sin. I can sit on lofty level and look down on you because I haven't done that one. And it is precisely at that moment that you need to remind yourselves of 1 Corinthians 10 and 12, which warns us to take heed to what has occurred, because therefore let him think he, who, who thinks he stands, let him take heed lest he fall. Anyone who does not or has not fallen into this sin is certainly, not capable, is certainly capable of falling into that sin. The Bible tells us that David was a man after God's own heart, right? We all know the story. Everyone in here knows the story. He loved God. He proved it over and over. He was called the man after God's own heart. We love David. We love the story of David. Yet David let his guard down. He was not diligent to do all that he should have done as king. 2 Samuel 11 records that David was in Jerusalem instead of being out with his army in battle. The way the scripture says, it was the time of year when kings went to war. David wasn't at war, was he? 
It was the time of year when kings are supposed to go to war. But instead of kings going to war, David was hanging out on the roof, girl watching. That's what he's doing. I mean, let's just be frank. That's what Jesus was, I mean, that's what David was doing. He was girl watching. And, <clears throat> and he was up on the roof and he saw this woman taking a bath. Was it a sin that David saw the woman bathing? No, that wasn't a sin. The sin came when David saw that the woman was very beautiful in appearance because that meant he looked close. See, he, he didn't just see a woman bathing and, oh, I better not look. He saw a woman bathing and he was like, oh, she's pretty. That's what David did. This is exactly what he looked closely for a long time. David was not as Job. Job said, behold, I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? That old adage is still true. You cannot keep a bird from flying over your head, but you can keep it from building a nest in your hair. You cannot keep from seeing sights that are enticing. And you cannot keep a thought from going through your mind, but you can restrict what you see, the the look to a gaze and keep on moving. That's what we can do. And we can keep a thought to passing rather than lusting. That we can do that. How serious did Jesus see this problem of sin in the heart? Look at Matthew 5, 29 and 30. And if your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it is better that one of the parts of your body perish than for the whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it is better that one of the parts of your body perish than for the whole body to go to hell. That sounds serious. And it is serious. It really is serious. And some have actually taken this to thinking they really need to pluck out an eye or or cut off a hand. But the sad part is they they failed to recognize that Jesus is speaking figuratively. He really isn't saying pluck your eye out. What he's trying to do is it is so serious that this is what I'm talking about. He's trying to get people's attention with that. History is full of those who've taken a monastic monastic or an ascetic value and they've shut themselves away. They've deprived themselves of food, sleep, and comfort. They've lived that monastic life away from all temptation. They've physically injured themselves some. Some some of the monks have even, this is crazy, I I had to find this out and and when I read it, it freaked me out. But some of these monastic uh, people who have followed that lifestyle have actually castrated themselves so that they would not feel lustful temptation anymore. And, and there's, a, there's a great uh, church father, Anathasius, and he said of St. Anthony, he said that the devil sometimes appears to him in the form of a woman. So he's living a monastic lifestyle, and that's what still happened. St. Jerome relates of St. Hilarion. He said that in his bed, his imagination was often beset with visions of naked women. This is a man who had taken a monastic vow, a vow and had gone off into the woods to live by himself, and he still couldn't stop thinking about it. Does that make sense? Because this is getting to exactly what Jesus is talking about. I'm not trying to be too graphic. I just want you to contemplate the extreme position and understand that those who tried to do it that way, they missed the boat too. These guys sometimes who went off into the wilderness, they missed the boat too. Jesus is not advocating self-inflicted injury. He's not advocating that we go out and live on an island somewhere. Plucking out your right eye still leaves your left eye. Cutting off your right hand leaves your left hand. Jesus is being figurative, but he's also making it clear the serious nature of sin. See, the right eye and the right hand, those were important in Jewish thought because the right side was considered to be the more important side. So if you cut off your right hand or you plucked out your right eye, those were your dominant. Those were the most important. So for a lefty like me, that's offensive. 
what Jesus is really saying is that if something is hindering you from living for God, then it is better to be without something important than let that thing drag you into hell. This is a call for dramatic severing of those, those sinful impulses, not severing of our hands and arms, but severing of the impulses. Anything that morally or spiritually traps you, causes you to fall into sin or to stray into sin, any of those things should be eliminated totally. Do TV and movies entice you into sin? Is it dragging you down? Then don't just turn it off. You have only shown, if you already feel a weakness to that, then just get rid of it. Is that too radical? Are y'all thinking I'm too radical? That is the seriousness with which Jesus is looking at this sin. Is it texting? Is it a messaging app on your phone? Delete it. Is it Facebook and all the old girlfriends there? Delete it. I don't know what your particular area of temptation may be, but whatever it is, do all you can to set it aside that you could live a holy life. That's what Jesus is really saying. Get those things out of your way that are causing you, are leading you to sin. If you're in an immoral relationship, end it. Pornographic things, end that thing. Get rid of it. Get an old flip phone. They still sell them. Get a flip phone that doesn't have pictures. If TV causes you to stumble, admit it and get rid of it. If it's romantic novels that glorify sin, get rid of them. Am I being too radical? I probably am. <laughs> but, I, I, but this study has shown me what the seriousness of sin is. This is what Jesus is saying about the seriousness of sin. And we don't understand the condemnation and the judgment and the punishment that sin brings. Eternity is a long, 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 long time. And I do not want to spend eternity shut out from God and, and suffering everlasting punishment. But you're thinking to yourself, wait a minute, Chris. You say the problem's in the heart and that the heart is sinful and now you're telling me to do external things. Get rid of these things. You said it's a sin, it's a heart problem. I'm confused. You have a right to be. Obviously, getting rid of harmful influences will not change a corrupt heart into a pure heart. You can go, I had a friend in high school, she said every time we'd have one of those youth rallies and they'd say, go get rid of all your worldly music and we'd throw them in the bonfire. She said, I never did that. She said, it just cost me money because I was going to buy it two weeks later. And she, she was right. I mean, that's, that's what we all ended up doing back then, right? So getting rid of the harmful influence doesn't change my heart, does it? The example I gave of those monastics earlier, that, that, going to extreme measures and still having thoughts of women. The outward act of voluntarily forsaking whatever is harmful does, however, reflect a heart that hungers and thirsts after righteousness. Paul told Timothy to flee youthful lusts, which is just what Joseph did when Potiphar's wife sought to seduce him. But Joseph fled not because he was not enticed by her, but because he loved God more. See, that's where I've got to get to. It's not so much that I'm just, I've gotten rid of my TV, I've gotten rid of my phone, gotten rid of my computer, gotten rid of my romantic novels. I stay away from Galveston and Gulf Shores. It, it's past that. It's a desire for God. It's a hunger and a thirst for righteousness that, that I don't care what passes in front of my eyes because I got to go live in the world. All of us do. We can't go to some island somewhere. We live in the world. But at some point, I've got to have a hunger and a thirst for God's way more than what the world is putting in front of me. Jesus' discussion here just proves again that one cannot become righteous by outward rules and regulations. 
We could pass a church standard. No one can have a, a, a phone. No one can have an iPhone or a Galaxy. No one can have a laptop. No one can have an iPad. And people in this room would still find ways to see things they're not supposed to see until people's hearts change. We will still seek after evil because it's human nature. We still go that route. But once the heart changes, then you could have, you could have everything you want. But your heart's seeking Jesus. You don't care what you have access to. I'm seeking Jesus. That's where he's going. The, the, the Pharisees were, were trying to make all these rules and regulations, and they were all self-righteous. You can't possibly follow all the rules. No one in this room can. The first step towards true righteousness is recognizing our own sinfulness, being poor in spirit and mourning over that sin. Without that, we can never truly turn from sin to the Savior. Do we recognize our sinfulness and that our only hope is in God? That's the first step to becoming a follower of Jesus Christ. It really is. Do we recognize our sinfulness and that our hope is in God? You cannot be holy and you cannot please God on your own. You must place your hope and trust in Christ alone. A true Christian is going to then hunger and thirst after righteousness. They will be concerned about the inward before the outward. They are going to have their heart continually purified by Jesus Christ. I love that concept that I'm going to be continually purified because I promise you tomorrow there will be anger or lust. There will be an opportunity for me to experience anger and lust tomorrow. And for you too. All for the, in the next 24 hours, every single person in this room is going to have a chance to experience one of those sins because it's in the human nature we're going to. But that heart that is purified, then it's that sanctification process. The Holy Ghost comes alongside. When I reject that thing, when it comes in front of me, and even if it goes through my brain for a second, the Holy Ghost comes alongside and, nope, nope, Chris. Hunger and thirst after me instead. And I'll, I reject that and I start walking towards, towards Jesus. We want our hearts purified. Do we profess to know Jesus? then consider who it is you want to please. This is what I beg you today. Is it yourself or is it God? Who do you want to please? I said at the beginning of this message that uh, this passage is going to expose our hearts. What will we do with that exposure now? What will we do with what we're seeing? Will we confess the sin within us and turn with grateful hearts towards God? thanking him for his forgiveness in Jesus Christ while striving with everything within us to live for him, live a life pleasing to him, a life glorifying to him? Or or will we continue to use that false standard made by man and be stuck in self-righteousness? Which is it for you today? I want that better way. I want that better way where I put on his righteousness in that upside-down kingdom. His upside-down kingdom where, where weakness becomes strength, where the rich are poor and the poor are weak. I mean, the poor are rich. Remember I said last week that we come to church not to have our worldview confirmed, but we come to be challenged by His worldview. His way is better. His way is so much better. Just like that whole concept of trading my weakness for his strength, I can also trade my uncertainty for his confidence. See, Jesus, you think about the standard he set for us. It would be real easy 
to be holy if all I had to do was not murder and not have an affair? Y'all think about it for a second. That would be pretty easy, right? The, I, just don't commit the physical act. But all kinds of evil stuff is going on in my heart. So in, if you look at it in one way, Jesus has now come and made things harder. Right? Because if you lust, well, you might as well have committed adultery. If you have anger, you might as well have committed murder. And so our instinct could be at that point, well, this is impossible. I could never do all this. There's no way I'll live up to your standard, God. Oh, but what has he provided for us in the Beatitudes? What has he shown us in the Beatitudes? This is all going back to the Beatitudes. This is where he says, come to me poor in spirit. So when you get to that place where I can't possibly obey all that stuff, I can't possibly make it. I had anger last week. I had lust last week. I had those thoughts go through my head. So I'm lost, right? No, you're just aware of your sin. And that's where Jesus wants us to start. Come to him poor in spirit. I have nothing to offer. Isn't that awesome? Because you don't need anything. You have to take nothing to God to get God. Just your empty hands. You put them out. God, I don't have anything. I don't have a thing. I'm poor in spirit. I know what my sinful state is. I know what I've done. I know the thoughts that have gone through my head. I am not worthy of your righteousness and your holiness. And I come to you with nothing in my hands. And he's like, yes, that's right. You're doing the right thing. And then then I get to, I'll mourn over my own sin. Oh God, the fact that I've committed sin, the fact that I have done things that have displeased you, the fact that I have violated your holy nature It makes me sad. It makes me weep. And God's like, yes, that's it. Keep coming to me. Keep coming to me. And then I I feel meekness because I want to be God controlled. I want him to control my life, every aspect of my life. And and I'm I'm ready to to let him avenge all wrongs. I'm I'm ready to let him control everything and run everything. And I come meek. And then I start to hunger and thirst after righteousness. I want to be like you. I want to be like you. I want to be like you, Jesus. And then, and then I get to the place where I now realize how much mercy has been given to me. And so I extend it to the people around me. Oh, I'm giving you mercy and I'm giving you mercy. And we're giving each other in this church mercy. We're giving the people in our houses mercy. We're giving the people at work mercy. And we're starting to look like little Jesuses. And then we're pure in heart. And that's where I don't, my mind doesn't even race to do evil. My mind races to do good. That's where that's, I've, I've hungered and thirsted after righteousness. And now Jesus is entering my heart. And not only is he, am I starting to go after the good things, but when I do a thing that's not good, my, my, the pureness of my heart recognizes that I did wrong and I correct it. I correct it. I, I get poor in spirit for just a minute. I start, to, I start to mourn over my own sin, and Jesus just pulls me back on the path. The Holy Ghost walks beside me and teaches me all things. Oh, isn't that wonderful? Isn't that wonderful? That's what he is offering us today. You don't have to be perfect. You don't have to get it right every single time because you can't. And he has provided a better way for us. I said this a few weeks ago. 
there was, there was a time in my life where I struggled because I just didn't think that I knew what was going on in my heart and I knew what I was demonstrating on the outside and I could not reconcile the two. And I lived with a constant uncertainty as to whether I was saved. I knew my heart was evil, but I was following all the rules. Man, I was doing everything I was supposed to do. I looked right, but I knew what was inside my own heart and I didn't know how to bridge that gap. The Beatitudes is the way to bridge that gap. That is how we bridge the gap between the unholiness that we, we, are, we find ourselves in because we're human and then the righteousness and holiness of God. We just follow the Beatitudes. And then I can, like I said, I can trade my uncertainty for His confidence. We can follow Jesus with all of our heart. That's what He's calling us to today. That's the path he's calling us all to. I don't want to just not murder another human being. I want that hatred to get out of my heart. I don't want to just not commit adultery. I want the lust to get out of my heart. And, and I want him to be there next week when I mess up. Because I'm going to and you're going to. And then he's going to pull us alongside and he's going to direct us and lead us and get us back where we're supposed to, to be if we follow him. That's the whole plan. His way is so much better. His way is so much better. I have, I have tried other ways. I have sought other ways. I have looked to do it an easier, softer way, but there is no easier, softer way. There's His way. There's only His way. And when we follow after Him with our whole heart, with our whole heart, He meets us there and He answers our prayer. Thank you guys. I love you so much.